Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guests are Bensi and Temes, the founders of Sion. Uh, Bensi and Temes, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Really, appreciate it. really a uh, a pleasure. Your track record is very inspiring, and and also the um, the, tr the the journey that you have done together until now it's it's quite impressive. So congratulations for uh, the recent uh, massive B round, and uh, and looking forward to get to know more. So feel free to to introduce each other and uh, who, who wants to start. I can kick off. I'm, I'm in charge of operations. I'm Tamash's co-founder. Um, back in the day, in the very early days, I was heading up business development for the initial first couple of years. And once Jimmy Fong, our chief commercial officer, joined a bit over two years ago now, I took over and I pivoted into this day-to-day -day ops role where I oversee people and talent, legal and compliance projects, um, office management, anything administrative falls onto my plate, uh, with which I can help all of the other executive team members. And then soon I'm going to be moving over to Austin and I'm going to be overseeing our, our amazing growth um, in the US and scaling up our team is going to be my next project. Sounds amazing. Thomas. Yeah. Um, yeah. My name is Thomas. I'm the co founder and CEO of Sion. We have started the startup uh, events at Beauty University. And uh, I am more related to the product and vision part of the project. I really like to learn more about fraud and how to adapt our system to tackle more of the issues our customers are facing on a day-to-day basis. Got it. And uh, that's great. So uh, we, we know uh, what are the responsibilities of each of the founders of uh, CEO and, and now, what is the mission of CEO and what is the problem that, that you guys are solving with, with CEO? Sure. Yeah. So uh, maybe Bats can explain. Uh, sure. Origin story. And yeah. then I can jump on the product side and how do we actually tackle the problem. <laughs> I can give some color on the why behind the company, certainly. So Tamash and myself, we were good university friends a couple of years back. And we were actually building a crypto exchange. This was when cryptos were nowhere near as popular as they are today. And after starting to accept credit card payments and starting to process credit card payments, we were faced with a bunch of fraud. So people were checking out with stolen identities and stolen credentials. And we quickly realized that if we don't solve the issue, then our business is going to burn to the ground uh, because we were, we were losing a bunch of money. And so we looked at the fraud prevention space back then everybody was aiming for enterprise sales and you know we were having to sit through multiple discovery and sales calls uh, there was complex integration processes very costly systems and clearly we we felt that we aren't the ideal customer profile for these companies out there so we said okay let's build something in-house that's going to solve our issue and then fast forward a couple of years here we are today where you know we're we're developing a full-on fraud prevention suite. Uh, we're working with clients like Revolut, Nubank, and Molly, uh, to name a few of our flagship customers. And they're happily using our system, and we're solving uh, massive 
crowd issues for them. And so pretty much what we've doubled down on over the years is, you know, ease of integration, uh, very simple cost structure. In fact, you can go on our website and you can find out what our pricing model is in a transparent manner. We have a public facing API documentation. You can start a free trial if you if you click on our uh, onboarding process in our on our website. So deep down, I think what sets us apart is our drive to democratize fraud finding in the sense that we want to make it available and as easily accessible to as many fraud and risk managers out there in the simplest form possible, just like you would consume, you know, on-demand services like Netflix or Spotify, to name a few. Um, yeah, so that's that's our mission and that's the why behind our company. Maybe Tawash, you can elaborate from a tech, technological perspective what really sets us apart. Yeah, so when, we have, when we have faced these issues ourselves with this crypto exchange, we have realized that actually most of the customers who purchase the crypto from us, they always had an email address or a phone number for a contact point. You could capture their IP address and device details and all this was in, invisible for them. So we could actually force them to upload their ID and provide a selfie, but we knew that in one hand, uh, this is not a bulletproof way to solve the problem because anyone can, as a criminal, acquire stolen ID scans from the dark web, which they can use to bypass those measures, as well as it's uh, friction in an onboarding process. So this can lead to churn, decrease user experience, and uh, as well as uh, it's quite expensive to verify an ID with different service providers so they can charge up to two euros or US dollars for each check. So we have recognized that those fraudsters in the beginning always used a yield IP address that say they were on a VPN. They use a throwaway email address. And when we have started to build our in-house tool, the main idea was also to base the initial risk assessment on these friction-free collectable data points because everyone on the internet has an email address or phone number and they also, uh, since they use browser internet connection, they will have an IP address and device details. So we have based our product uh, on these disciplines and um, when we have started to actually work on Sion as, as the project itself, when we have pivoted, we also try to be very industry agnostic. So we try to have every and all the online businesses out there not just from a specific industry or not just uh, over a specific size. It's really easy to use our tool. And then when we have actually found, found a product market fit, which was, I would say, in the first two years, um, we have quickly realized that the best go-to-market strategy for us would be uh, the so-called product-led growth. Essentially, it means that um, what we do today is providing a free trial a self-boarding component. Um, anyone can prove an ROI as a business in the quickest manner, which is unusual in our space because most of our competitors are focusing right. on big enterprise clients. So that's really different. And you also have very in-depth public-facing API documentation. So they can access this website where they can read about not only the API documentation, but as well as uh, they can see high-level uh, workflows, they can see FAQs, uh, user manual, a knowledge base, which helps them to just fight code more efficiently. And it's all upfront. And also in terms of GTM, um, what we have realized is 
Um, we should be very clear and transparent and also straightforward with our pricing. So we have decided to follow the pay-as-you-go model and usage-based pricing, which means that we only charge for uh, the different uh, uh, consumption our, our clients are uh, using our systems for, which is also quite unique in our space. So combining, right. yeah, combining the platform itself by focusing on enriching data of customer digital footprint, and as well as uh, this unique GTM strategy helped us to actually scale up rather quickly, especially in the last two and a half, three years. So we are also proud now to, you know, uh, close this um, Series B round, which would help us to further democratize for fighting uh, across all industries and for any online business, literally. Sounds uh, an amazing vision and, and great uh, differentiation and an uh, unusual approach uh, to the enterprise market. Uh, I can see the, definitely the differentiation and um, the moat uh, there. So, and in terms of the stage of growth, you have just shared um, that you have raised, and I also did at the beginning the, the B round, but in terms of headcount, uh, how much have you raised it, uh, name of some investors, so give us just some stats on where you are in terms of stage of growth. Sure. So we closed our A round last year, early last year, and then pretty much 12 months later, we closed our B round. Um, last year... We were early last year, we were about like 40 in terms of headcount. And then uh, now, beginning of this year, we, we, we just hit uh, 200 full time employees. Wow. Now we go actually. Times uh, five. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's been quite an amazing growth journey. I mean, as you can imagine, hiring over 150 new team members in pretty much a 12 months time frame, that was, and that was quite a challenge. And, um, and I was initially, I was actually one of my greatest concerns was around how are we going to keep our company culture intact and how do we, you know, how, how do we get to the scale, uh, making sure that everybody feels good about themselves. They still, they, they still feel like a, a true Sion team member, but luckily we've arrived and I think we've done a decent job. Uh, we we did a bunch of team building activities. We, you know, we have AMA sessions uh, recurring uh, where Tomas and myself and other executive team members answer any questions that our staff may have towards us. So, yeah, we, we do a bunch of things uh, from that perspective. And then revenue wise, we closed an amazing year as well, because compared to beginning of of last year and beginning of this year, we three X'd. Um, and again, we have we had a couple of amazing names that started using us, like Revolut, for example, uh, Molly as well. So, so yeah, we, well, we had a good year. We had a good run. It's always great to to have growth by the book, right? So then you can choose the the investors and the partners that you want to work with in the upcoming stages of growth. And and we always need help because with uh, that kind of growth, uh, a lot of pro more problems come on our way. But I think those those are the great problems to have, right? So yeah. the worst problems is when we don't have the growth. Uh, we don't have the resources. Uh, those are much more complicated problems to have. <laughs> yeah, and it's a fun mm -hmm. journey. You you gotta enjoy the journey, obviously. So uh, so it's good. Yeah. 
Awesome. And there is a curiosity out of the process is that you have been building uh, the company out of uh, Angry. Can you share a little bit more how, how it's been the experience uh, so far starting up um, scale-up uh, in Angry? maybe without uh, a lot of other role models and, and examples in terms of ecosystem, especially in terms of not, not the startup stage maybe, but the scale-up stage, right? So it's, it's not easy to have a lot of peers to, to talk about that experience locally. For sure, for sure. So I would say my two cents for this will be, um, Hungary is, uh, of course, uh, not a startup nation uh, like Estonia or even not so basic hub like London. So you definitely have to go global and international from the first day. So even when we have started to look for our first investors, um, we went to international events abroad. We started to network with advisors and mentors who we could learn from, not specifically from Hungary, but um, that was really important for us to always, you know, look look over the uh, over the border and uh, just be sure that we are building an international business which is not locked in our own country. So um, we, we could actually meet and, and learn from local uh, players too, but I think most of the advices came from people abroad really. And um, then even if uh, I look back and see like how we have started to acquire the first customers, then it was very important to go uh, global and uh, to go um, for for players uh, who are not located in our country so we try to attract clients that are you know in those hubs and we had really often travel to places like london or berlin or even to the usa in the first couple of years even still today but it was in our dna that you know we have to be there and we have to meet our clients on the face to face in order to get started and we haven't really been focusing on you know like being um, Hungarian business. So of course we have started out from here. We could find a good talent pool for engineers, and um, it's something that you know is possible to do from from a place like this uh, or any other countries in Europe or around the world. But when it's about scaling up the business, it gets more challenging because I think the hard part is to find those sales and marketing professionals who need to have uh, international and global experience. Um, from previous uh, startups and companies they have worked for. So right. when, when we have opened the London office about a bit more than two years ago, that's when we have really started to also scale up and, and, and think think more globally. And, and it helped us to add those profiles to our um, story who we couldn't find out of Hungary. So I think it's very important to look at the map, like, you know, hey, we have to be close to the investors, we have to go close to the clients and really like from, from a place in Eastern Europe, it's not really possible uh, unless you want to focus on the local market, which was never our intention. Got it. Uh, and in, in terms of uh, headcount and offices, uh, how are you guys split it to kind of understand uh, where you are? 85% of our headcount sits out of Budapest. Um, mm -hmm. And then the rest is, is spread around London, Austin, um, and Jakarta. And obviously London is the heaviest one right now. So we have about, I think almost 15 heads um, sitting out of London uh, or maybe even higher because <laughs> we're, we're, hiring, we're hiring so many right. people. Um, and then five people sitting out of um, Austin and 
we have about a team of seven in Jakarta as of today. So Got yeah, it. quite quite diverse uh, from that perspective. And then we're aiming to to scale up, especially in Austin, Texas. We want to, you know, we want to get a a larger footprint in the U.S. Um, from a business perspective, business development perspective. So we're going to be around twenty in terms of a headcount out of the U.S. in in about twelve months' time. Got it. Since uh, it makes. Uh all sense um, to expand into into the US, but let us know a little bit more about what is that rationale behind your expansion strategy. Uh, I was also curious to ask um, why the Indonesian uh, office, uh, if it is kind of uh, up to serve Asian uh, clients, if it is from a talent perspective, but maybe we can clarify that one first and then uh, jump into the US uh, discussion and the expansion strategy. Sure. So we were looking. So on the one hand, we had a good revenue share from the uh, APAC region, right? So we had uh, some a good amount of clients, even starting from the early days. And for us, Asia, Asia Pacific region was always strategically. We could actually remotely close clients quite easily, and fraud <laughs> for them is a major issue. So we really felt like we had to focus on that region, and we gotta open a local office there. Now we looked at different regions, and you know Singapore obviously comes to everybody's mind. Very costly, quite saturated. A um, lot of local regulation around company formation and whatnot. So we looked at what else you know can come in the picture, and we realized Jakarta has a really good talent pool. You know, very good uh, level of English proficiency. Everybody speaks English and, uh, to a good yeah. level. Um, and we were able to surround ourselves and find some some good talent that perfectly fits into our company culture. And we brought them out to Budapest for like a two month time frame, uh, where they were able to, you know, like a sponge, pretty much. Uh, drain all the knowledge and information and, and just take it in and then they went back and you know now they're cultivating the same culture and we have a a good office there uh, where they can get together and they go into the office there's really good office culture and it's they, they love going in there so I mean it was um, and it's it's not as expensive as Singapore uh, when you when you look at it from that perspective and interestingly enough we were able to find also quite some uh, some DevOps talent out of Jakarta as well, which uh, sometimes we struggled with after a certain point in Hungary. So, yep, and, and DevOps for us is also important. So we have multi-time zone coverage. You know, if something happens in the middle of the night um, from an infrastructure perspective, it's really good that we have people sitting in multiple time zones covering that. Right. Exactly. And it makes all sense. We we also have a, an Asian season in, in the podcast and definitely Indonesia is the largest market in, in the region and where uh, Southeast Asian based, based companies uh, scale up through uh, the Indonesian market. So I was really curious about your approach into, as you said, the APAC uh, region or the, even the Southeast Asia um, region. 
And of course, you will also relocate yourself then to, into, into Austin, as you said uh, before. So which means one of the founders moving uh, into a key market uh, of growth and also expanding the, the headcount uh, um, in, in the US in Austin. Um, what has been your approach in terms of uh, deciding the US as, as the main focus of, uh, of growth and, and why Austin? Sure. Well, I think, look, our, it's no secret. Our, uh, the, the U.S. is a very competitive market. And up until early last year, we didn't really have the resources to step into that market because um, every time, you know, the first question from potential U.S. customers was, well, great. Do you have any U.S. clients? Do you have a U.S. office? Do you have people sitting on the ground? And uh, our for a very long time, our answers were no to these questions. And so after Series A, we started building out the team and we started uh, building some solid traction. And now we have a, a decent revenue share from the US, but we certainly you know, see much more potential and we, we want to scale it up. And uh, down the line, we feel that the US is a strategic market for us. And uh, we certainly want to expand that revenue share. So that was the initiative on in terms of why now and why at this point, you know, as a European company, um, a lot of a lot of companies have failed with stepping into the mm -hmm. US market. So we really wanted to uh, have a decent strategic framework behind actually exec executing on that. And then now that we have a good We've also brought on board a really good executive team, which extends Tamash's and my, my bandwidth. Um, I can actually safely say that, you know, we can move a founder over, uh, that, that would be myself, and I can truly focus on scaling up that team and, and you know, cultivating the Sion spirits, also attracting key talent, um, even helping in closing deals, sharing information on a live basis, sitting in the office with our team there. And I think that's really important when you're traveling, when you're tackling, you know, expansion initiatives at the other side of the world, especially if it's the US, which is such a strategic market. So that's pretty much how we went about it and, and the reason why now. And, and yeah, that's pretty much it. And, and you are right. So having, uh, understanding what is the right timing to expand into the US can really uh, be a great ally of growth, but at the same time can kill the company uh, if we don't have the resources or if it is the wrong timing to to go into into the US. And it's always opening a new market. It's always a, a difficult jump, and especially for European uh, companies, for the majority of the American companies, they can almost get into IPO without having to move to, to a second market. So usually uh, in the case of European companies, there is this breach uh, typically from to, to the UK and then from the UK to the US, that's the typical path. And of course, there are other players that still bet on uh, within the European expansion, we are also seeing a lot of companies coming out of Spain, uh, going through the Latin American uh, route uh, of, uh, of growth and less companies taking the Southeast Asia uh, route of growth, because again, 
India and China are um, two continents, so super difficult to to penetrate. Again, they don't need to get out of their markets to to compete with other players. And then the other markets uh, are super complex. Uh, Japan, South Korea, um, and of course Australia, and New Zealand are approached by via the UK or via uh, the US in in general. So just sharing a little bit the, the map here and, and the diff different uh, expansion <laughs> strategies possible for uh, European companies, right? Awesome. And um, any any other uh, consideration or lesson learned that you would like to uh, share on, on this topic? Or should we move into more the, the fundraising uh, angle, which is always appreciated from, from the ones who are listening to us? Happy to share insights on the fundraising. Yeah. Awesome. So, of course, going through, I'm not sure if you also raised the kind of the pre-seed round or if you if you have gone directly into the into the seed round. But uh, what has we been the difference? Yeah, we actually okay. had a pre-seed round. Yeah. Okay, but but just just sharing a little bit the journey going from pre-seed into seed from and, and and to a and to b let's of course spend more more time on the a round 12 months ago and and now the the b round but um, for the ones who are uh, considering to to scale up and maybe approaching their uh, a round and then they need to also when they are raising the a round as i like to share they need to be thinking at least um, not only in the short term, which is the, um, the next uh, round, which is the 12, 18 month uh, cycle that you were able to shorten into the, the 12 month, but also understanding what they will need to, to, to do from the B to the C round, because a lot of stuff needs to be seeded uh, during the A stage, let's say, and now during the B uh, stage. So long story short, uh, what have been some of your lessons learned during this uh, fundraising process? Oh, I think, look, there's uh, there's certainly, I think looking back at the past couple of years, um, there's very much aggressiveness on, on the market, right? Like uh, the dynamics were were sped up and, uh, and I think from an investor's perspective, uh, we did see that everybody was moving quickly and, and, and there was a lot of hunger. And, and I'm not sure how that's shaping, but we do see a slowdown uh, when it comes to deals being made. Um, you know, there's a lot of turbulence on the public markets, which I'm not even going to go into. Um, but bear in mind that I think looking at the fact that our company was, was growing really well, and it was probably in, in a very top percentile when we measure uh, the performances of, uh, of SaaS startups. Uh, we were also raising in a time when, uh, when, it, was, when it was easy to raise, I should say, uh, if I want to boil it down to a single you know, summary. Good timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah re really good timing. And, uh, and, and we're not going to play that down, you know. So I'm not only going to say we're an amazing company, I'm also saying that we were at the right time, we were raising capital. Um, and it was, yeah. it was quite easy to raise. But on the, other hand, 
good to uh, that's 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 great to have both right so you yeah. have the numbers so you would be able to raise uh independently of the market but uh with with that market you were able to to be in a even in a better position to to raise yeah. capital right? yeah so i think that's part of it but then answering your question or maybe reflecting on what we did as a company yeah. um which is not you know, related to the market dynamics, obviously. Um, we, we had a very strong past couple of years in terms of revenue growth. Um, we were able to focus and we were able to scale up our business development team and we did the right things in-house. So when it, when it was around, you know, scaling marketing spend and, uh, and bringing the right people for the marketing team on board in order to pretty much uh, focus on demand generation and fill the top funnel from an inbound perspective. I think we did the right things, uh, but also from an outbound perspective, when it comes to scaling the business development team, uh, we added the right hands and we had the right strategy, hence why we had really healthy revenue growth and tripling our revenue numbers year on year. Uh, but that also means that we probably, by Series A, uh, we probably found product market fit, right? Which a typical Series A investor is, is looking for at that stage. Uh, so we specifically knew which markets were able to perform in well and what our sales strategy is in those markets. Uh, and I think that's, that's really important for, for Series A stage. Um, mm -hmm. Because that means that you just have to pour more capital and now, you know, you're going to be expanding and, and probably it's going to work out from that point onwards. Uh, and then between Series A and Series B, I think what was super important for us was, okay, now we have product market fit. Let's figure out um, from a more uh, quantitative perspective of what we've been doing, you know, what are the metrics and units behind it in terms of uh, if we turn the knobs and levers over a longer term, are we going to be able to figure out how much capital we actually have to pour um, in here and what that's going to result in? And, and we were actually able to figure that out. So I think post Series A, what we really focused on was becoming much more um, metrics driven and actually making our or basing our decisions less and less on gut feeling, but more and more on our data right. that we had, um, we had pretty much sort of uh, extracted out of our business. And now we're able to understand that. And I think that was a big part of raising Series B was, okay, how well do you understand your business um, on a quantitative uh, perspective and are you able to pinpoint um, where you're headed over the long term? And, and that's how I think we drew up our Series B vision. Yeah, I would ask here that during Series B, we have uh, learned uh, that you know, metrics are so important for a late stage investor. So you have to get your numbers uh, straight and right if you prepare for something like that. So uh, metrics like NDR, CAC, CAC payback, uh, right. well, economics are, are super important for an investor. So um, during Series 8, it wasn't the case. We weren't 100% sure about like, you know, what are our key metrics and, and, and you mm -hmm. know, it was 
it was a great vision. We had good numbers in terms of uh, revenue growth, traction, um, product fit. Um, we, we got very good feedback. Also, you know, I did references on us, but um, what we have improved on during our V is, was like more like this kind of competition uh, from the investor side. So we have learned how to actually create like a short list of investors and how to initiate conversations with them how to set the communication channels and what to share and when and how to run the process. So the process is super important in order to um, increase your valuation. If you don't talk to many investors, then you might miss chances of, uh, of, of just being competitive on the market. If, if they uh, you know, don't hear you and see you, then you have less chances of having the, the largest uh, valuation possible. But obviously for us, uh, it, we weren't focused on just getting the largest valuation and, and, and go with an investor who offers the most uh, in terms of the company valuation. Um, we had our eyes on US expansion and still are. So uh, we have actually rejected uh, an offer which could be higher in terms of valuation than what we have for today. So we really been focused on getting just uh, a partner and replicate the same experience we've had with the value other part as we have experienced with Creandum uh, during the series A. So mm -hmm. during this baby, we have optimized for a smart money investor again. And uh, uh, for us, it's super important to get access to uh, a network of angels of advisors and mentors. So we can continue to find shortcuts in building the business and just learning more from those experts who we are not today yet. Right. Great, uh, great points this, for the ones who are uh, starting or for the ones who are in the journey. And this is uh, quite hectic. And as I like to say, it's the Champions League of business or the Olympic Games uh, of business. You can imagine just going from pre-seed to seed and seed to A and getting into a 1 million ARR company in such a short uh, period of time. And then having this uh, this challenge of tripling or at least doubling revenue to stay in the game uh, every single year, it's its kind of crazy. We know that there are some missed quarters and, and sometimes we, we might face a very strong growth plateau and it doesn't mean the end of the company, but uh, but at least that that's kind of the, the standard and the expectation that when we raise capital, uh, we are getting from an investor perspective and also from a founder perspective, because again, we want to have the chance of, uh, of choosing the, the best ones to keep on the journey with us. And if we are not able to deliver the metrics, it will be very difficult to have that option. Right? Uh, so uh, as I like to say, it's not only from an investor perspective, it's also from the founder perspective. We, we want the best metrics possible to be in a, in a strong position in, into that negotiation. And, and again, being in the right timing in terms of the revenue mat metrics, in terms of acceleration of the revenue metrics, and also uh, in terms of the market um, dynamics. And in your case, it's great because you, you have some time until you need to raise again. So you can be also more conservative or less aggressive depending on the unit economics that uh, you have uh, at this stage. Okay, cool. So very good reflections uh, on building a company out of Hungary, the expansion strategy, some fundraising lessons uh, here as well. I think that's something interesting that we didn't discuss before we get into the final um, question and, and answer to, to wrap up um, is 
keeping the balance of having maybe the the tech uh, or engineering and products based out of Hungary and maybe revenue uh, the revenue functions scaling up in uh, for instance in in the US or even in the UK uh, before uh, different cultures different time zones this might become even higher challenges moving forward and also avoiding having two companies or three companies with Indonesian uh, office and only having uh, a global company. So do you have any any tips there? I know that a lot of this we are still solving as we go, but uh, uh, what have been some of your uh, lessons learned there? Yeah, I think, and actually I'm starting to, uh, funny that you asked because I was just um, discussing with our VP of people about this topic just last week, I think. Um, we certainly have to start focusing on being inclusive when it comes to our global talent base, our, our, our global workforce. And you know, some simple things that come to my mind is making sure that if there's a recurring meeting uh, with multiple stakeholders in the calendar, which is like in European hours in the afternoon, then that's like nighttime for Jakarta. So maybe just flipping it up every every two weeks or something, right? So I don't know, you have week A, you have week B. On, on week A, you cater for morning hours and, and that's suitable for, I don't know, half, half of the world. And then on week B, you cater for afternoon hours and that's suitable for the other half of the world. So this is these are just simple things that you have to be very mindful of. And uh, the more and more you grow, the more and more you're going to face these issues and the more and more you're going to have to develop and think about it in terms of how you cater for that. Um, so, yeah, we're in the midst of, of actually building these bridges and uh, making sure that everybody feels fully included. Um, but on the other hand, you just have to catch up with your workforce regularly. So you, you have to reach out and even though you're not sitting in the same office, I do believe that you just have to jump on regular check-ins and ask how somebody feels because a lot of times you can't expect them to tell you their problems. Yeah. And, and uh, probably they're not going to. So that's why you have to reach out uh, a lot. What we do, I think, very well is actually every new employee from abroad are invited for a three weeks training. You started off with two months, but realized like two months is just like, bit of an overhead for uh, you know, everyone. So three weeks is, is something suitable for most people to take on a trip. So I'm from US, from Indonesia, um, and even from London, take up here for three weeks to be closer to the uh, wider team and yeah, just take home away all the, uh, the, all the learnings they can have. And uh, as well as the London team comes out to Budapest every month on the third week. So I was the whole team. If, if, you know, everyone, if they can make it, they're they invited here to spend uh, three, four days in our office uh, over here. And uh, as well as, uh, I would say that there are some good technologies which we have implemented to keep the different teams more closer. So we have put these um, uh, conference call bars in, in the conference rooms, which, you know, have them to just very easily jump on Zoom calls with. So it's a, it's a special uh, tech tool. It can be equipped on a, top of a TV and then you know, it's a wide angle and voice is very good. 
and doesn't require to connect it to a computer, but then it can be open up as a Zoom room. So um, helps to reduce the latency and, and have a very, uh, very, very clear communication. So we have these in, in almost every conference room in every office we have. And, and it's, it's super useful to be closer to the team that way so they don't sit around the table with their own computers uh, joining Zoom, but you can see like a complete picture of the team sitting in a room. I think it's super useful. We have different uh, plugins and tools installed on Slack to start like, you know, random coffee chats um, to, you know, we do pools, we have different initiatives like water coolers to make everyone more uh, open and, and, and inclusive towards our teammates. So, you know, we try to always look for these, um, these, these useful methods of just keeping everyone close, even virtually, because we are, you know, following a hybrid model. So many of our employees and teammates are working from home, which is, of course, uh, something we have to account with. Good tips, uh, and I really like the onboarding journey. And uh, it is more than proven, even for the companies who are one hundred percent remote. Uh, that uh, coming together from time to time, it it helps uh, the remote uh, experience. Uh, it's it's much better to have those uh, touch points in person that then make the remote work much more um, effective. So let's come for the last segment uh, of the show where I will ask you uh, quick answers in a set of um, questions, which are only six. Uh, the first three are much more a reflection on, on your journey and, uh, and the last three are much more resources that you'd like to share with uh, other peers that are listening to the show. So if you'd have the opportunity to have a coffee uh, with your younger self uh, at the beginning of, of this journey, what advice would you offer to, to your younger self? Thomas, for instance, you want to start now? Yeah, I would say um, to my younger self, like go as big and as crazy as possible. So, you know, I found that when I was young, I was always worried about consequences and then I was maybe too risk averse of just, you know, let's say packing my stuff and moving abroad or uh, leaving everything behind. And, 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 and these things really can, you know, limit you, I think. And all the great things happen uh, out of your comfort zone. So I think if someone wants to launch a business like we have done, then you have to go like, you know, really, really, you know, risk taking approach. But of course, uh, educated risk only. Uh, but I would have probably make some some bets earlier than I have made actually. Maybe let's say like um, I have finished uh, university, but maybe you know I'm, I'm thinking now it's it's not really useful to have a diploma when we are working on our own business, and and I don't think ever I will apply for a job where it will be reviewed, you know, that uh, I have a diploma or not. So I think maybe if uh, I would have um, we would have maybe started earlier with. You know, have our journey because then we would be way ahead of our competitors uh, by now. But you know, then it didn't happen. <laughs> then we have just you know, right. uh, university and went uh, um, as a full-time um, startup founder into the journey like 2017. So everything you know was going uh, a little slowly in the beginning, but it was mainly because yeah, we were and I was myself like more risk-averse than now. So um, yeah, Vincent. Yeah, from my from my end. Sorry. Uh, so from my end, uh, probably 
around, and this was something that uh, we had received from, uh, <laughs> I had received this advice from a founder as well. But uh, if I could tell my earlier self is focusing on culture earlier, um, mm -hmm. I think that would have been uh, important. And even drafting up what our cultural values are, because, uh, you know, in the early days, you don't really think about that. It's sort of natural and you have so much on your plate that you, you don't focus on these things. But, um, but yeah, if we would have maybe drafted uh, these cultural values on paper earlier and we would have, you know, um, cultivated it to a better extent, I think that, that that's, that's good stuff. So there's definitely, my advice to any founder, really early founder out there, like the earlier you focus on that and the earlier you draft that up and the earlier your, your team members are aware of that, the better. And what are you the most proud of on your journey so far? Um, yeah, I think um, we have multiple milestones uh, behind us and ahead of us. So let's say the most proud was um, actually when we have announced the latest funding round, you know, like every every milestone is getting bigger and, and being more uh, of uh, kind of like satisfactory for, for my staff. So I can't say like, hey, this was specifically like the best uh, or, or, or the most proud moment. I think every step and every, uh, yeah, every, every uh, new uh, achievement is, is just something that makes me more and more proud of. I'm from my end, I'm proud of our team. So I'm really happy that, you know, everybody feels like, uh, like we're on a mission to, you know, uh, to save companies from fraud. And I, I truly, when I come in the office, I can see that in the spirits and I'm really proud of, proud of that. So that makes me really happy as a founder. Worst advice ever received? I would say the worst advice was when someone told us like, oh, we have to hire expensive salespeople to sell to enterprise type of uh, clients. And, uh, you know, it's actually not something that we have done uh, because we have realized that the type of business we, we try to build is more bottoms up. And then I think we'll be like way, 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 uh, uh, we would have way less traction compared to now. We would hunt those big mammoths and look for big clients, you know, as our uh, new potential customers. So we have decided to go with more like smaller clients, medium-sized clients, and then it helped us to actually work in the shorter sales cycle and also, you know, grow together with those clients. So I think if we would have followed uh, those advices, which were around like being more an enterprise-focused company, then we would have potentially failed because everyone else were doing the same and we try to do the same as everyone else which is usually not the best approach if you are an early stage company yeah also there was a point when uh, we had an acquisition offer this was after seed funding round and some people were advising us to actually uh, sell the company but in the end we obviously we didn't we decided not to but that was not good advice i don't think i i hope you agree on that Tomas. yeah yeah it was agree. <laughs> decision the the asset is now much more valuable uh so favorite book uh yeah i can't say it, uh no rules rules by reed hashing so the founder of netflix we really resonate well with their culture we try to be also very open-minded candid and um yeah i really like the books uh, the book so 
I can highly advise to any startup founder. So I'm not big on business literature, but this was really useful for me to understand like how you can be at a high functioning, high talent density team. Love it. That's it. Do you have any? Uh, yeah. It is not an oblig. Um, it's not mandatory to. I'm, I'm going to go, <laughs> go for 48 laws of power. I read that uh, quite a long time ago, and there's some interesting. Uh, yeah, certainly some interesting takes in there. So now yeah, I'll, I'll just go with that one. Got it. Favorite movie or series, if you prefer. Yeah, I think I have just watched a really good series. I can recommend uh, called We Crashed. And I'm not saying that, you know, like it was completely true to how a startup works, but it was the closest uh, movie or series I saw so far, which presents how the dynamics can work between a board, between a founder, and how founders uh, can think about their business and vision. So I really like it. I can highly recommend it. It's, it's, it's a new series. So uh, I've just seen it, but uh, it's related a lot also about how. Uh, we were thinking of uh, uh, specific uh, relations and, and, and how we handled uh, specific uh, challenges before. Can you repeat the name of, of the series? Yeah, We Crashed. Got it. Okay. Super curious. Not the, to... It's on the WeWork story, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, he's recommended it to me last week, but I, I still have to catch up on that one. For me, I don't know. Uh, Maybe uh, if it's a series, I like Billions a lot just because of the energy. That's, uh, yeah, that's awesome. And finally, the favorite podcast, of course, excluding this one. <laughs> um, I can recommend the Product Let's Sales podcast. It's really useful to hear other um, marketers and, and sales professionals to express how they combine product ledness and also a top-down strategy. So I think in the future, most SaaS businesses will be like product-led because that's the way to go. And even if it sounds like a buzzword, I think you know it's, it's good to, to emphasize how useful is it to appear to the end users and the developer community. But as well as um, it's quite tricky to you know, understand how you can talk to more of a high-level decision makers and how you can speed up onboarding software uh, uh, you know, sales process. So it's a really, really good podcast. I can recommend it. I'll go with 20 VC. Uh, I like 20 VC. I've listened to a bunch, uh, but I'll, but also sometimes I listen to some Joe Rogan as well. I mean, there's interesting people talking on there. So another very, very different angle, but also interesting. Absolutely. Thomas and Bensi, congratulations for your path. And thanks so much for making the time to share your journey with us. And you are always welcome to, to come share the upcoming chapters of, of your journey. Much appreciated. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having thanks. us. Thanks. A pleasure. And to our community, as you see, we keep bringing you the best stories, uh, the best advice to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. See you soon and keep scaling. Thank you.